Praise team. I don't know about you, but I enjoy praising the Lord together with you. Don't you? God is faithful, without a doubt. And I, and I love seeing all ages up here too, don't you? Seeing some youth up here, new members, I love it. And uh, so here we are together as a family, worshiping the God of all creation. What an amazing thought. Let's begin today with, with the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that even as we read about the, the heroes of the faith from, from many years ago, as far back as the book of Genesis, and you are faithful to them, and yet you're faithful to us, and we serve the same God as the God of Adam, the God of, of Enoch, the God of Abel. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. I pray that we recognize that as we look into your word today, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are studying the heroes of the faith. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which is where, where we're at uh, right now. But I want to ask a, uh, a question. Um, what does true faith look like in a faithless world? Uh, while you're looking uh, in, in Hebrews 11, we're looking at heroes of the faith. But isn't it true that we live in a world, a culture that is pretty much faithless, Right? Uh, we, we're, people don't even bat an eye to say, well, I don't believe in anything, or I don't believe in that, or I'm an atheist. And, and we live in a culture uh, where, where it's just with, without faith. And what does faith look like in a faithless world? And I believe that today as we look into God's word, we're going to see a hero of the faith that shows exactly what that's like. That perhaps there's no other culture in history uh, of the Bible that would be more comparable to the culture that we have right now than in the days of, of the hero of, that we're going to talk about today. Now, for those who are catching up with us uh, uh, for the first time, this is what's going on in, in, the, in the context here, the historical context. We have uh, the Hebrews have, have accepted Jesus Christ. Jesus has come onto the scene, and he's been the pinnacle of, of all of their history. So there's this rich Hebrew heritage for Christianity, and yet, um, and yet because of the, the persecution from the Romans, they, want, they were willing to accept all of their Hebrew heritage minus the part about Jesus Christ. They wanted to have nothing to do with a king who had died and rose again. And they, they saw that as competition. And, and, and so the, there were many in, the, in Christendom who were saying, why don't we just take out Christ and go back to our roots and leave it there? And what we find in the book of Hebrews in chapters 1 through 10 is that God gives us hope and he, and he shows how all of these things, everything in, in Hebrew heritage points to Jesus Christ. Without him, it would make no sense. It's like the hub on a wheel, and the, the spokes would, be not, would not be connected to anything. It doesn't work without Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we have. And then starting in chapter 11, we have he, heroes of the faith. And the hero that we're going to talk about today is Enoch. The hero is Enoch. And to, to look at that, we'll start in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. Let's read this uh, together. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found... Because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through Hebrews chapter 11, this is probably one of the most perplexing verses in the, in, in the chapter. Maybe even one of the most perplexing verses in the book of Hebrews, which many say is the most perplexing book of the New Testament, right? So this, this, is, this is a perplexing uh, uh, passage in Scripture for, for a couple of reasons. One, there's this concept of someone who, who didn't die. I mean, really? Uh, you know, someone didn't die. They, they skipped the death process. Uh, you know, the, and as well as the fact that this passage is based on a very, very limited context. 
fact, we, we, read about, uh, we read about this here. We read about it in one other place in the New Testament about Enoch. But it all goes back to the context that we find all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 5. See, in Genesis chapter 5, we find the first of many genealogies in the, in the book of, of Genesis. And uh, this is the introduction to it, verses 1 and 2. Um, we'll probably be flipping around a little bit, so if you want to keep something in Hebrews 11, we'll be back there. But we'll also spend some time in Genesis. Uh, so Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So this is the introduction to the genealogy of Adam. And, uh, and really, we find several genealogies throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, so in fact it's really not an accurate way of saying it. it ge- uh, Genesis isn't a story with genealogies thrown in. It's a genealogy with stories thrown in. Uh, because these genealogies connect everything that's going on in the book of, uh, of Genesis. And, uh, and what we find is really unique in this, is that this genealogy is done with a Hebrew literary device that, that I don't even know if it has a name to it, but I call it the cyclical shock effect. Now let me explain that. Uh, the cyclical shock effect. One thing to remember is that the, in the early Old Testament was intended to be, to be read aloud, Right? Many of the people didn't, didn't know how to read and write. They came out of Egypt, right, where they were slaves. And so it was meant to be read aloud. And so here we find this, this I call it the cyclical shock effect. And the idea is, is <clears throat> to create a redundant cycle or a monotonous pattern for the hearer, uh, causing the hearer to almost expect what's coming next. And then... Pow! You just change something. I mean, something comes, something comes out of the ordinary, and it's not what you're expecting, and it brings emphasis to that part of the passage. And, uh, and uh, so this is, this is done to show some emphasis. Now, the, the, the first one we find of this actually goes all the way back to the very way Scripture begins in Genesis. Uh, when we have this, the, the narrative of how God created the world, we find this cyclical pattern repeated over and over and over again. Do uh, you remember how it starts? Day one, what, is, what does God say? Let there be light. Very good. And then it says, and then there was light with some description about it. And then at the end it says, and behold, God looked and saw what he had made. So we have this divine God looking upon what he had made for the day. It says, and it was good. Right? We find that every day. It was good. And then after that, it goes on to say the. The, that was, there was the evening, there was the morning, that was day one. And then from there, it would move on to day two and say, let there be. And we find this cycle repeated over and over again. So it's let there be, and there was. God looked, and it was good. Evening, morning, day one. Let there be, and there was, and God looked, and it was good. Evening and morning, day two. Let there be, and there was, and God looked, and it was good. Evening and morning, day three. Are you starting to feel that monotonous tone? Day four, uh, let there be, and there was, and God looked. It was good, evening and the morning. Day five, let there be, and there was, God looked. It was good, evening and morning. Day six, let there be, and there was, God looked, and it was very good. Evening and the morning, day six. Do you see a difference? And so this is that cyclical shock effect where, where, where things are, are, are expressed in such a way that we almost expect what's coming next, and then when we don't get what's coming next, God's saying, that's what I wanted you to get. You're getting it. You're, this is what it's about. And what we find on day six is that, is that uh, it's a very good day. Why? Because in that day, he created the pinnacle of his creation and made mankind in his own image. If 
that doesn't boost your self-esteem, I don't know what will, right? So the, after you look at the beauty of all of creation, and God says, yeah, that's nothing. Look at mankind. Wow. And so uh, this is that cyclical shock effect that, that, that we find. And now we come to Genesis 5, just a couple chapters later, and in the genealogy, this is, we find the exact same thing take place. Here's what it is. Look at uh, verses 3 through 5. It says, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam uh, lived were 930 years, and he died. So here we find the same process because uh, it begins with each, with each person in the genealogy. It begins with such and such a person lived X many years, right? And then it moves from there to, well, then he begot. That means he had the children and what, this, he, he gave, uh, uh, or had a descendant in, in, his, uh, in his image. So then after that, it says how many years he lived after that. Then it goes on to explain he had other sons and daughters, Right? And all the days, the total of the days, were X many years. And then it goes from there to, and he died. And then from there, it goes on to the next person. And this is the cycle that we find in the genealogy of, of Genesis 5. Now, this might seem like a huge introduction to what we're about to say, but in a moment, it's going to come to light. All right? So hang on. Um, hang on to this. So what we're about to see now in the following verses Um, is this same cyclical shock effect. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read in Genesis 5, 6 through 24. And I want you to see if you can recognize this cycle and look for what God does so that there's a shock, something that comes out of the ordinary. So as tempted as you might be to read along, I'm just going to ask you just just to listen like the original hearers of God's word, okay? And I promise you I'll read from God's word. I'm not going to make something up. Not going to add anything to God's word. And, uh, and so here we go. Um, so we'll look at uh, Genesis chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 24. 6 through 24. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 800 year, 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was 
not, for God took him. You catch it? And so you, you find, and so oftentimes when we find something that we don't like to hear, it's repetition or seems monotonous, we just kind of skip over it. Don't do that. This is God's word, right? And, and so we get this, and, and it puts our mind in this, and we're expecting what? Three words. And he died. And in place of those three words, what we find is he was not, for God took him. And, and so what do we really know then about Enoch's faith? It, it, this tells us a, an awful lot, even in a short, in a short way. By the way, this is not a lot of information, is it? When you think about it, this is, this is the original source, and this is all we find from the original source about the life of Enoch. And yet somehow he's made it all the way to uh, Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. And so one thing, one thing we have to be careful of as humans is when we don't have all of the information, what do we do? We fill in the gaps, don't we? We, we fill in the gaps, and we can let our imaginations go pretty wild, can't we? Yep. I mean, let's be honest. Are any other humans out there? Okay. All right. Then, then you're like me, and, and you've you got to be careful. In fact, when, uh, just to tell a little uh, funny story, when I was a uh, pastor of Christian education at Evangel Baptist Church, uh, one of my responsibilities was to oversee uh, the library, which had grown to a point where it was, it was getting huge, and uh, it wasn't a top priority. So somewhere around year three or four, somewhere in there, um, I oversaw the task of kind of weeding through the books that we had in our library at Evangel. And uh, one, of the, one of the books that, um, uh, that I found was, uh, was called, here, let's see, I think I've got it right here. Yes. Did Genesis Man Conquer Space? You know what it's about? Enoch. Right? And, and the idea was how, how Enoch was no more. Therefore, he must have been the first person for intergalactic uh, space travel. And I mean, no lie. I'm telling you, this was in the book. It was in our library. And it goes through and talks about how he created the pyramids and, and to, to tap into the energies of the world so they could do intergalactic space travel. And so we have to be very careful. I mean, that's a lot to read into these two verses, isn't it? Don't you think? Um, so, but what do we know? That's the key. Well, Let's take it, what, what does the Bible say that we do know uh, from Genesis? And here's what we know. This is what we know about Enoch's faith. A couple of things. Number one, he walked with God. Twice it says that in those two verses. It says at first that he walked with God for 300 years. In place of talking about when he died, it says that he walked with God for 300 years. And then at the end, uh, the second time in the verse, it says that he walked with God. And that that is why God took him. And so... Uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot of biblical information about this, but we know this. He walked with God. He had such an intimate relationship with his, with his creator that, that God said, I'm going to have him bypass the whole process of death. Right? I mean, that he walked with God. That is an amazing thought when you think about it. Um, and when it goes on to say that so much so that he took him from the earth. He took him from the earth. Um, so, I mean, that's, a, that's, that's not a passive verb. It's, it doesn't say he was taken. It's God took him. God, God intervened in history for Enoch. The second thing we know, it's pretty obvious uh, when we look at that, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What we find is Enoch did not die. In fact, I've heard, in fact, I heard this on Jeopardy once where they were talking about the oldest documented person. Who, you know, who's the oldest documented person who's lived the longest? And what's the answer? Any people in here know? Yeah, you're close. It's Enoch, right? 
Think about it for a moment. Yes, yes, uh, Methuselah, his son, lived to be well into, his, into 900 plus years, right? But Enoch was born before or after his son. This is common sense. I'm throwing you a softball question here, right? He, he was born before him. When did Enoch die? He didn't. Think about that. That God is somewhere super, supernaturally sustaining the life of Enoch. That blows my mind. But, but uh, you look at it, you read the genealogy, right? Adam died. Enosh died. Canaan died. Mahalalel. That's a mouthful. I had to practice that one a few times before I read it. But he died, right? Uh, um, Jared died. Enoch was no more because the Lord took him. Uh, what, a, what a thought for that. And, you know, the, so the oldest person who ever lived, when someone asks you, make sure you give them the right answer. Say, it's Enoch. He's still alive. He's been around for several thousand years, right? Uh, wow, what a, what a thought. Now, um, remember what Paul said, because we studied Romans not that long ago. Remember what Paul said in reference to this genealogy? You might remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, he said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. He's saying, uh, from the time of Adam on, death reigned. Why is that? Because of the genealogy, what do we find? And he died at the end of every person's name, with the exception of whom? Enoch. And so, so we find what, that death reigns. Uh, in fact, how many of you have great, great, great grandparents that are alive? Nobody. How about great, great grandparents? Anyone with great grandparents? Grandparents? Okay, now a few. Parents? Aiden, you better have your hand up. Okay, good. Okay, right. It goes up because it doesn't take too many generations to where you find that there are, are no survivors left. Why? Because death by nature reigns. It is, in fact, they say there's, there are only two certain things in life, and one of those is death, right? And the other one is taxes, right? Death and taxes. Only two certain things. Uh, so we find death reigned. So, so understanding how death reigns helps us appreciate the nature of this phenomena here where God says to him that, that he took him and he did not, uh, he did not die. I find that fascinating. Uh, we also find that this is, only, this is one of only two times in Scripture that this happens. The other one is found in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, you don't have to turn there if, if you don't want to. I just want you to see that and compare it to this. This is a, a, a context where <clears throat> Elijah the prophet is with his apprentice, Elisha. It says, Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. Wow, fascinating story. Uh, and so we have one example pre-flood and one example post-flood. And those are the only two in human history where God chose to come down and, and take them up, bypassing the whole process of death. Um, and I know what some of you might be thinking, you say, wait a minute, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Or as we, in the context that we've been studying, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, it, says, it is appointed unto man once to die. Um, and so this has led many to believe, including myself, uh, that, that when it comes to uh, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, many believe that they're Enoch and Elisha. 
makes perfect sense to me because they're the only two who have not died. And, and in Revelations 11, they do die. But in, um, uh, we have uh, oh, this concept of two witnesses in the end times who will stand, and they will bear testimony of things that, that men have never seen before, right? Well, who could these two te- witnesses be? And uh, so what we find is that people will try to kill them, and it says that the people who try to kill them will be consumed. Wow. Think about that. They'll be consumed. For three and a half years, people will try to kill them. At the end of three and a half years, they will be killed, and the whole world will celebrate because they're sick of hearing, how, you know, hearing the truth. And three and a half days later, they'll come back to life, and the heart of everyone in the world will sink. Wow. The two, two witnesses— uh, now, the Bible doesn't say specifically that it's Enoch and Elijah. I do personally believe that that is the case. But here's what we do know. We know that Enoch walked with God. And we know that he did not die. And, you know, this is the only, the only example of that. Not everyone who walks with God bypasses death, right? In fact, you, you go to skip ahead to the, the genealogy. In, uh, in, in chapter 6, we find the genealogy of Noah. It says, Noah was, was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah did what? He walked with God. But you go to the end of that section, and it re- goes back to the same cyclical pattern, and we, free, we find, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years. And what's the next three words? And he died. So a very special case with Enoch. He, his walk with God, his, his relationship with God was so tight that God selected him to be one of the two to have not seen death supernaturally sustaining their lives. So what does that kind of faith look like? Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know a little bit more than just what's in those couple of verses? Um, Well, the best biblical information we have about Enoch's faith comes from the book of Jude. So if you want to turn to the book of Jude, it comes right before Revelation. It's a small book, so it's difficult to find. So look for Revelation 1 and go backwards, right? There are no chapters. It's just one chapter long. But uh, Jude chapter 14, uh, or uh, verses 14 and 15 to remind you who Jude is. Jude is huge in the, in the world of Christianity, at the, especially at that time. Yeah, he was one of the very few who could claim that his half-brother was Jesus himself, right? Um, his brother was James. His brother was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. E- even the apostles, you might remember when, when Paul and Peter had a little dispute, they submitted themselves to the leadership of James. You might remember that, uh, which is an argument, by the way, that, that Peter was not the first pope. Right? Because he submitted himself to James. And uh, so it doesn't sound like a pope. Not only that, he was wrong. And he apologized and, and came around. So here we have Jude, very, very prominent figure in the New, in the New Testament church. And this is what we read um, uh, from, from Jude, verse, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with his tens, uh, or with his ten thousands of saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is, this is the most information that we have about Enoch and what Enoch's life was about, what, what his faith actually looked like. Uh, but one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, wait a minute, where did Jude get this information, right? Did he get it from Scripture? 
No, because we just read the only other scripture that exists about the life of Enoch. We read it in Genesis. We read it in the book of Hebrews. Those are the only other two references. Well, did, did he get this information from oral tradition? And the answer to that is, well, sort of. Yeah, sort of did. In fact, the, the oral traditions of, of, the, of Enoch were passed down for generations. And so stories, even though they weren't recorded in Scripture, there were stories about Enoch that passed down from the beginning all the way on through. Uh, many of those recorded into what is now called the Book of Enoch, right? Into a section of that book that's called the Book of the Watchers. And, uh, and so uh, many people thought it might not be as late as they were thinking until the Qumran scrolls were found and... And uh, I feel sorry for Ray. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of stuff for you to translate today. <laughs> and, uh, um, but you look at this, and, and, uh, and what we find that's interesting to me, probably the most interesting part of this, is that this quote that we find in Jude 14 and 15 is a direct quote from the book of the Watchers, from the book of Enoch. Interesting, no? And so what we find uh, is, is that, that even though he wasn't quoting other scriptures, he was quoting from the book of Enoch, which relayed uh, the, the compilation of historical understanding of what Enoch actually said. Uh, and so I find that interesting. What we do know, where did Jude get his information? Where does every writer of Scripture get their information? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So we know that Enoch said this, Right? We, are we all on the same page here? We know that, that Jesus said this. By the way, I just want to throw out there. Just because the Bible quotes an extra-biblical source, you know, uh, because the Bible quotes something outside of Scripture, that does not mean that that, was, that other Scripture or that other writing was intended to be part of the Scripture, right? Because if you watch Discovery Channel or if you watch uh, any of those channels, you're going to find the lost books of the Bible. Anyone ever see something like that? Okay, so a few of you. No, no. Just because the Bible quotes something doesn't mean that we should hold that to the same standard as God's Word. Amen? I mean, we, we look at it. We, what we have right here, this is all we need for life and practice. This is it. So anything else, there can be books that are good. There can be books that are true. There can even theoretically be a book that is 100% true. We still wouldn't hold it to the same level as God's Word. Because this is not only true, it is God's inspired Word. This is the information that God wanted to 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 reveal to us. Amen? And so, I'm, so don't fall for all of that lost books of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, it does lend some credibility to, to invalidate, really, the historical context of Enoch's quote. And uh, what we find in the context is of the, in the book of Enoch, which I ended up reading this week, uh, so you'll see that Enoch's quote was taken as he stood up against a culture that was getting worse and worse in the very same sins that eventually led to the destruction of the earth in the days of Noah. Uh, and so the, the Bible purposely, I believe purposely, does not go into all the details of the sins during the days of Enoch through Noah. It doesn't, go through, doesn't give us all the details. Why? Because I think it would give us ideas, <laughs> right? Because the Bible does say when, when, the, when, the, when there's evil on the earth as it was in the days of Noah... That's when the destruction is going to take place again. So I don't think we've gotten there yet. And that seems hard to believe, doesn't it? When you look at all the evil around us. But, but in fact, the description that we find in Genesis right before the flood narrative is this. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And this is how the flood narrative begins. And so Enoch was living in the days that led right up to that. And, uh, and, and we, we find a, a harsh world there. Uh, so what does it look like? That's the question. What does it look like? Uh, what does true faith look like in a faithless world? This is how we see it. And, th- and th- this is, we see it in the hero, in the example of Enoch. So let's look at it a little bit closer. In Jude 14 and 15, this is what we read. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Ten thousands of his saints. That's number one, true faith in a faithless world. It exalts God's power over any and every earthly power. You got to remember what's going on in the context of, of, Enoch's, of Enoch's life. The scripture says, the book of Enoch says as well, but the scripture says, Peter talks about demons coming down from their, their, their places in the heavens procreating with women, right? That's what we read in, in uh, what Peter writes about. They're having such demonic influences in the world. It says they're teaching the, the things that they ought not know. And, and, I mean, things are getting evil on the earth. Demonic influences. By the way, we ought not forget that demons are real. I don't think they should always show themselves up in the same way as, as in, they definitely don't show up the way that they always show up in, the, in uh, the Hollywood movies, right? But they're real, and they're active, right? And, and uh, Paul tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, uh, dark places of this world. So, uh, so we have this, this time of high demonic influence. And... Uh, um, and so, in fact, the Bible says, too, that the, the result of this was giants. There were literally giants in the land. Archaeology, by the way, confirms this, right? We, we studied the book of Joshua. We went into some of that. We saw how the, some of those descendants were still alive in the days of Joshua. So horrible things going on. And here you have this little voice, one person speaking out, saying, wait a minute, you might think you're everything. I mean, you're, you're so advanced and you've done all these things. But you know what? God is coming. This is the, this is the, the message of Enoch. He's, he's saying, God is coming. You might think you're powerful, but God's coming with his tens of thousands of saints. He will, he was, he's coming. Wow. I mean, this is probably not a popular message, right? In my mind, I can't help but think of the Lorax. So, some of you might remember the Lorax. Any Dr. Seuss fans here? All right. Yeah, there's a few of you. And, and the Lorax, and he would speak for the trees. And everyone hated the message because they liked to use the trees for all those things. But he was saying, there's doom coming if you don't take care of the trees. Th- that's kind of the image I get of Enoch a little bit, who in a culture that is completely faithless, and everyone is, is putting their faith in other things. And they've got giants who are in the land, and you've got all sorts of horrible things going on. And, and, um, and Enoch is the one saying, you think you're tough, but God's coming. You know, you, you, he, he exalted the power of God over any and every earthly power in a time when there were giants in the land. They thought themselves to be unstoppable, right? Invincible. And he stood up against them. Wow, what an amazing thought. I would uh, go on to, go on to, to look at uh, verse 15, and, uh, and we read this. 
So he told that God was coming for, for what purpose? To execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You catch the word ungodly there? catch the word ungodly. Yeah, he, he uses it four times in one sentence. That's, uh, that's quite a bit. And so we look at this, we find that two things that come out of this. Number one, uh, it, it, true faith does not engage in sinful behavior, but it speaks out against sinful behavior. I want to put, talk about those two together. See, because the, the, first, the first point that God, it exalts God's power over any and every earthly power, that has a lesson for us too, doesn't it? I mean, you know, don't we cower to our authorities sometimes? Don't we, we either put our faith in them or we cower from them, uh, and we ought not do that? I mean, I hate to tell you this, but Donald Trump will, not, will never save you, right? Hillary Trump can't— or Hillary— Hillary Trump. <laughs> that, that, would be a me- that would be interesting. <laughs> Hillary Clinton cannot save you, right? She can't kill you, right? Uh, now, I, I, yes, we should, be, we should be wise in the way we vote. I'm, uh, yes, we should do our role. I'm not saying to be anti-political or anything like that. But I'm telling you right now, don't put your hope in what people can do. Because we should exalt the power of God over every power on earth. And, and really, what, what's going to change this country isn't one, one president or another. Uh, what's really going to change this country is if, if they start repenting and turning to God. That's the thing that would change the world. So, so more importantly than the election is, are we doing the Great Commission? So, so that, in a, which we will if we believe, if we exalt the power of God over others. But also then we find in, in, the, in the verse 15 that, you know what? We shouldn't be engaging in sinful behavior. We shouldn't start become stained by what's going on around us. But instead, we should be speaking out against sinful behavior. We, we should be the, one, the ones out there letting people know what the truth is. And I'm not talking about some pharisaical legalism, you know, where we're constantly telling everybody how bad they are. But instead, we're talking about something that flows out of a relationship with God. We can't divorce this from the context where it says Enoch walked with God. We should have such an intimate relationship with our Creator that we are disgusted at our own sinfulness. And we should love people so much that when we see them offending God and we know the power of God, we should warn them about that. That's a very different thing than than being a holier-than-thou. In fact, it's a completely different attitude because really we recognize how sinful we are, right? Which is why we're going to have communion, why we have communion uh, frequently. Why? Because we, we have to recognize the sinfulness and, and we recognize what Jesus Christ did for us. We recognize it's not about us. We recognize it is about him. And that's what it's all about. We, because we recognize who God is, we don't engage in sinful behavior. It, it affects the way we, we live our lives and it also causes us to speak out. But I'll tell you what, the church in America, we failed in some of this, haven't we? We're engaging in sinful behavior and as, if, uh, as if, well, you know, it's just a slight abuse of God's grace or something. And we start seeing, how close can we get to living like the world? How many sins can we... That's not the picture that I see of Enoch's faith. I mean, he lived in a culture worse than ours and he still stood up against them all and, uh, and, and, and gave the truth. 
You notice Enoch didn't change his culture. He, he, he didn't succeed to change everyone in his culture. But it's through his example, I'm sure, that his great-grandson, it could be said of him, his great-grandson Noah, says that Noah walked with God. And God saved the human race through, through the great-grandson of Enoch. And we look at this as the type of faith that we ought to lift up. This is a hero, wouldn't you say? And what's the final word? What, what do we find about him? And if we go back to our original text in Hebrews 11, we read, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. And then listen to this. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. This is the type of faith that pleases God. What about you? What about you? I'm going to ask three simple questions for introspection, and then we're going to participate in communion t- together. And I would, I would su- suggest that you take these questions with you, even into the times of meditation during communion. But the first question is this. If God were to, s- to describe your relationship with him, would he say that you walk with him? If, if, if scripture were still being written for future generations that have yet to exist, and he was talking about your life, would he say, and so-and-so, put your name in there, walked with God? Or have you just kind of followed the religious practices? You show up to church, try to earn some credit, you try to avoid the really bad things, or do you walk with God? Second question is this. Are you engaging in behavior that you know would not please God? Are you here to please him? Or are you engaging in behavior unlike Enoch, trying to fit into the culture, fit, fitting into things so that, so that you don't look so much like a holier than thou? Or this, you know, you, but are you engaging in behavior that you know? I mean, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. If you're, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Is there, is there a behavior that you engage in that you know does not please God? And the third thing is is, is, your weak, is your faith so weak that you refuse to stand up against sin? Boy, if I'm honest, I think we're all guilty of this. Sometimes I'm guilty of this too. Where we live in a culture where sin is all around us and we just kind of ignore it. We're afraid that if we call something sin, then people will, will condemn us as being judgmental. But it's not being judgmental when we're telling people how God sees things, Right? It's judgmental if I start giving my opinion, start throwing my opinion out there. If I start telling you, oh, you don't dress like me, so you must not be in, in God's good graces. Now it's a problem of mine, right? Or if I start telling, well, you have to look like me or do what I do. No. Here's the standard that God has set for us. If I point that, then that's not being judgmental. Amen? We need to be active. We need to be a voice in our community, in our neighborhoods. And we need to, to let people know they're offending God. But there's good news. God sent his son to pay for the, those offenses. If we come to him and humbly accept what Jesus Christ did for us, then we can have forgiveness of sins. Amen? And that's what, that's what it's all about for us. That's what communion is all about for us as well. Enoch is a hero of the faith because he walked with God and he lived in a godless culture and still influenced others to do the same. And that is a hero for us. That is an example for us to follow. Isn't it? In just a moment, we're going to, to uh, uh, participate in communion. And 
uh, and so in fact I'd ask uh, the 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 uh, deacons to go ahead and start making their way start making their way forward and uh, join us here in the front row but as we talk about communion we have to understand communion has two purposes for us one of those purposes is to help us look in faith backwards and then one of those is to help us look in faith forwards as we look backwards in faith the idea is that we we look back at what Jesus Christ did and that's why we have two elements we have we have bread and we have the cup and when we when we come together to the table we participate in those things and those represent the blood and the body of Jesus Christ we'll read some verses in a few moments uh, to reflect that but they re- represent the blood and the body of Christ we look back at what Jesus Christ did, but it is also to look forward. And we have the same message as Enoch, in a way. And that message is simple. God is coming. In fact, it says that we are to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ until he comes again, until he comes back. How many of you believe, with all your hearts, in spite of this godless culture we live in, that Jesus Christ is coming back for us? And that's the message that we have. That's why we participate in this together. And so as we participate in the communion together, I want us to reflect on those questions, but I also want us to look forward to what Jesus Christ is doing when he's coming back for us and saving us from our sins. We have an entire culture that would make fun of us for that. But we, like Enoch, have faith. We, like Enoch, believe that it's real.